This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you for tuning in all over the world. Super cool show today. For the first time ever on What Matters Most, over a thousand episodes. Our guest is in the jungles of Peru. How, how amazing is technology? And that we can gather all around the world, learn from each other and listen. I, I love sitting in the seat. Greatest, greatest spot ever. Shout out to Julian, who also travels the world, who's helped connect me to this incredible, great person. He's a teacher, entrepreneur, author. He does shaman work, CEO, many titles, many labels, but just here to make a beautiful difference in the world. It's it's an honor to finally welcome to the family, Mr. Hamilton Souther. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much. I super appreciate the opportunity, Paul, and I really enjoy your work. So really happy to be able to be here today. Thank you, brother. Talk about where you are right now. I'm curious. What's it like? How long have you been down there? Yeah, so I'm in uh, northeastern Peru in the Peruvian Amazon, sort of the western Amazon, eastern part of Peru, um, near Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, sort of a convergence of where the Amazon River actually is born. And um, yeah, so it's an amazing place. Uh, We're the largest city, most remote city in the world that can only be accessed by water and air. So you can fly in or you got to come in on boats. There are no roads out of the city. And the city's about five, 600,000 people expanding every year. I've been here for the last 20 years. Uh, I often get to travel, obviously, but uh, yeah, our home base is here. And it's been an incredible place to be. What's it like to be so close to that beautiful jungle and to go in it? It's a living, breathing thing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the jungle is a massive, I mean, most diverse, but massive biomass. Um, it really grows out of itself. So I think one of the most amazing things is that you see the cycle of life in continuous regeneration and uh, being in it is fully immersive. You get completely swallowed by the jungle. You become in balance with it almost, you know, in just a couple of days in there and uh, you become part of the nature and part of the life. And instead of it being scary and dark, the way people describe it, it's actually really incredible. Like the, the, uh, the the way that you're received by the forest is actually something very special. The animals have a place for you there and being immersed in it is, um, it's really connecting. I would imagine living there so long and spending so much time there would actually be much harder to come back to say New York City and exist. I think it is in its own way. I, I think of them both as uh, systems, very complicated systems that when you get comfortable with that system, it it's, you know, very easy to be able to navigate and move through. And if you're not used to that system, then it's a little bit more difficult. And in my early 20s, when I first moved into the Amazon, having no idea of how to live in it, I went through that process of almost like a brand new childhood of uh, going through those original learning steps again, just how to walk in the forest, um, how to you know navigate in the forest, et cetera, like how you would learn how to use the subway system or something like that. So I actually find when I go to the big cities, that uh, I have to draw on the education that I had as a kid and kind of center myself and, you know, feel comfortable again in those environments. But I do find that they are rather hectic and uh, pretty intense in terms of the energy that they they have. And you kind of got to have the right mindset for them. And for me, they feel unnatural to my being and my soul and my heart. 
I don't think they are natural fundamentally. If you look at the algorithms that they're based on, they're based on right angles and the architecture created by man. And um, while that's an extension of the natural world, there's this huge intermediary called us and the mind that fundamentally treads, you know, it, it terraforms. The way I like to think of it is a terraform. It terraforms the land and it terraforms and uh, reshapes all of the matter. So they take all, you know, all the natural resources, but ultimately reshape it to be able to become, you know, glass towers and cement cities. And uh, I don't think it's it's no longer really a true expression of the natural world, but now a kind of amalgam of these other technologies. And it's really a habitat. So, you know, people who live there get used to that habitat, but it really is its, its own form of habitat. And I don't really feel as comfortable there as I do in forests or around what people call nature, even though I think it's kind of funny to, to abstract nature from the, the modern. It's sort of like a flip, right? It used to all be nature and there was one city and then there were 10 cities and then 20 cities or there was no suburbia. And now there's there's so much suburbia that it's been normalized. And now looking back to to nature, that scene is the thing that is you know, potentially other or scary or different. Um, but yeah, cities are are an incredible uh, construct in their own right. I have a lot of respect for them for what they are and what they do. But fundamentally, uh, you know, I don't feel that that natural connection. Also, they process the life out of all the elements. I mean, concrete, steel, and it comes from the natural world, but it's not like walking on the moss in a forest or even out in the Everglades or swimming in a river or in the ocean, it's alive. All these enzymes, molecules, infinite organisms. It's just the opposite. It's not good or bad. I'm just saying, for me, natural always feels better. To me, I think it does too. Again, I agree that it's not good or bad, but I think it's a natural evolution. It's like the growth of the species. I think of it as layers of technology that we created that have been normalized. And so we don't really have a connection anymore with the pre-industrial world. So the world's been industrialized in many different forms. And as part of that is a notion of just harvesting natural resources for the use of humanity with very little understanding of the ultimate consequences associated with that. And so people are just, you know, for profit motive and need of gain as well as uh, supporting an infinitely growing population and the way that that they can and the way that they know, they just grab these technologies and use them. And it's technologies that have been around for, you know, tens of thousands of years, and then the last thousand years and the last 500 years and the last hundred years. And, uh, you know, the nature of that technology just builds on itself until you basically get these sprawling megalopolises. Uh, I don't think they're going to be around forever by any means. I don't think that's the future of humanity, but it is what we face today. Yeah, and you could say if you're from another planet, well, is it working? And they'd say, well, let's check the pharmaceutical prescription levels for antidepressants, the suicide levels, the depression levels, the isolation, the murder rates. And you would go, ooh, that doesn't seem to be going so well. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think if you look at the stats, the stats are moving in directions that uh, fundamentally just show the the nature of the abstraction. So these cities are new developments, right? They're, they're a new concept for humanity, even though they get normalized very quickly in our collective consciousness and the way uh, media portrays kind of normalcy. So there's this rampant, very fast normalization of these habitats that have been created for humans, 
by humans, right? We create it for ourselves out of an imagination and an idea of what we think might be nice. Ultimately, we don't know all of the consequences that can be fundamentally associated with it. I don't think it's just one technology. I think it's a combination of the movement to digital technologies and the abstractions associated with the mind being on phones and computers all the time. I think it's associated with uh, the neural network in the brain that gets created, having had all of these different kinds of digital and dissociative experiences. I think then that also is combined with the physical infrastructure and then the idea of what I call man and his machines, where he forgets that he's the creator of machines and he's normalized them. So it's not I'm getting in a machine called a car, it's I'm getting in my car. And it's not, I'm in a machine driving around, skimming across the earth, you know, 12, 14 inches off the ground. It's I'm in my Tesla or I'm in my BMW, you know, or I'm in my uh, whatever car brand you like. And so I think the, the combination of man and machine and man and silicon chips and digital has created really kind of a cyborgic entity that is, uh, you know, starting to show in the statistics, the different kinds of difficulties that people uh, are suffering from this combination and onslaught of kind of endless technology and all the tasks associated with it. I'm always fascinated by the difference between when I was growing up and now, because my generation was the generation that was pre-digital and then post-digital at the same time. So we were going through education, both high school and college education during the transition. And so we have this infancy in the analog world and we have this adult life in the digital world. And fundamentally, I don't see that the digital world in any way has decreased the number of tasks that we have to do, especially if we think of a task as a keyboard stroke or the opening of an app or the signing in of an app. On the contrary, we have to do now in our normal daily life, I would say the equivalent of 10X to 20X, the amount of quote unquote homework we had to do in high school when it was all analog based. And it's actually very repetitive behaviors. And I don't think people realize the effect that that has on, especially the younger generations, the isolation associated with it, the lack of real human contact, a kind of communication that's purely linguistically oriented. It's no longer so emotionally oriented. You can't put emotions into an emoji. An emoji is a new kind of communication. Emotional communication used to be really a vibe that people would go, give off. It was facial expressions. Uh, it was very unique to each individual. It was a very sophisticated form of communication when people were all together. And it was a key aspect of how we related to each other socially. All of that has been abstracted in the last 20 years, especially in the last 10. And I think we're seeing that now that for the generations that are on that cusp that were pre-digital, the technology can be overwhelming for the younger generations. It's uh, isolating. And with that, you get all of the different statistics of these different kinds of disorders. And so when we look at them, every single disorder ultimately uh, is a, a product of a certain kind of isolation or a certain kind of dissociation. Well, spot on. We're disconnected from the source, from the earth, from ourselves. All this is a mind-based projection. It's the metaphor of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the monster we create, you know, gets free from the lab and turns on us. That's what technology has done. I feel like there's good to it, but it's taken over. And like you, but even earlier, I was raised wild. I mean, we just get outside the house all day, play in the woods, we live by the Everglades, so we were always out there. We'd go to the beach, and we were punished. When we were punished, we had to stay inside. That was the punishment, stay inside for half hours, excruciating. So, And and then when you're in person with people, you pick up 
millions of things. There's pheromones, there's smell, there's sound, there's subtleties. You can't get that through a text or that's why a lot of times humor can offend people on a text, but in person it would have worked. What made you in your 20s suddenly say, I think I'm going to move to the jungles of Peru? Well, it's kind of a, an interesting story in its own right. Um, yeah. So I had graduated from the university. I was living kind of a pretty, uh, you know, normal and expansive, I would say, you know, experience of my youth. I was uh, educated in the sciences and um, sports and things like that. And when I got out of college in the year after university, as I was kind of finding my way, I had a spontaneous awakening. And um, during that experience, I uh, I had both very intense dream experiences that started to influence the direction I was taking. I started to get into meditation and different kinds of uh, trance practices, all sober without any kind of substances. And um, in them, I was getting guided by the experience itself, by different figures or elements within the, the experience. And then I was also having these spontaneous sort of eruptions of universal understandings and uh, universal thought. So uh, an example was I was at a restaurant, um, you know, all of a sudden I felt a little woozy. I get up, I excuse myself to go outside. I go outside, there's a highway passing by the restaurant where the cars are going about 45 miles an hour. And all of a sudden I could see everything as if it were in super slow motion. And I could see all the movements of everybody passing through the cars. I could see even the pores in their skin. I have no idea how. And then uh, I then a visionary field opened up bigger than than just the road around me. And I could see literally all of humanity at the same time, all moving at the same time in that super slow motion. And I saw this sort of sync of, you know, our great spirit and the total energy that we represent. I had no frame of reference for those kinds of experiences. They would start and then just go away. And uh, through them, I was guided that, to go to Peru. I was told in the visions that I would go to Peru and that there were actually um, you know, master elders who were still practicing and they were actually waiting for me. I thought this was, you know, a, a complete fantasy in my own right. I didn't expect anything to come from it, but it was so intense. I thought I needed to at least go to Peru to uh, see if it were true. And so I was told in the visions that all I needed to do was backpack around and I would ultimately be guided in the same way that I was already being guided to these people and that it would take less than 90 days. So I thought a 90 day investment while I was figuring myself out in my youth was worth it. Worst case scenario, I thought I could write a book about how it all failed or something. And, uh, and so I went on the journey and lo and behold, in less than 80 days, I actually found the location where I ended up living deep in the forest. Um, it was way beyond the concept of off grid and Ultimately, in my first ayahuasca ceremony, I had visions that I would stay there, learn to live there, be accepted by the people, and ultimately accepted by the great elders there. And then a number of years later, after I had gone through apprenticeship and had ultimately um, you know, made it through that and had been considered one of the lineage that I was in, that um, you know, they had seen visions that I would be coming for about 10 years. We had never spoken about it, and um, they corroborated everything that had happened at that point. And so I had, you know, lived through this, this visionary experience that ultimately became completely real and it was corroborated on all fronts. And out of that, I developed Blue Morpho, which was the first center in the Peruvian Amazon dedicated to sharing the real uh, healing arts of the Amazonian people, the real plant medicine arts of literally hundreds of different kinds of plant medicine. It was a kind of a new kind of anthropological uh, slash medical tourism 
that was created and ultimately became sacred plant tourism and the neo-shamanic revolution and part of the psychedelic renaissance. Wow. And as you began to speak, brother, I swore to God, I felt like the Amazon reached out and invited you in and you had to take it free will. And you did. God only knows how many people you've touched and how many you still will touch. And for others of the linear mind, that may sound insane, but there you are 20 years later and doing the work. What is it about ayahuasca or these plant medicines that are so sacred and so opening for those who have never experienced it, including me? I feel drawn, but I only want to do it under very sacred circumstances. I don't want to in any way dishonor it by making it a recreational type of experience. I would want it only to be sacred. And if I felt led like you did. Well, I, th I think we have to go way back in history. I mean, for instance, the lineage that I was brought into has been an unbroken lineage for thousands of years, meaning that the ancestral knowledge was passed on from one generation to the next, literally for thousands of years. And so if you think about that, that's like even pre-Christianity. So people have been holding these, these ceremonies. They've had the technology of the plant medicines down here for literally thousands and thousands of years. Uh, very similar to Chinese medicine that has five to 10,000 years of you know, knowledge and codification of using herbs for different kinds of healing purposes and using energy for those purposes. So um, fundamentally, I, you know, when I got into the Amazon, I realized that the locals, because I was an anthropologist, so I was studying the locals as much as they were sharing their wisdom with me, that they have a very animated understanding of the forest. The forest just isn't materialism to them. The forest is material, but it's also animated. And they call that spirit. And so they say the spirit of the forest is animated and the spirit of the forest can teach you through these different kinds of teacher plants. And they function as kinds of gateways. So these teacher plants come in to your body. They help you open your mind. They help you open up your consciousness. And when that takes place, you feel this tremendous interconnection with everything that's going on within the forest. And the forest isn't this isolated uh, biomass anymore. The forest becomes populated by all of these beings. And the beings are plants and insects and animals, you know, but it's, it's the energy of them, not just their physical material. Think of it as like the collective electrons of all of them or the collective subatomic of all of them. And this really great field of, of what you could study in material physics or you could study through animated mythology. You could kind of express it either way. And when you drink the visionary plants, they create a fundamental altered state of consciousness and very different to the Western psychedelic concepts where you go on a trip. This is actually a very deep meditative visionary experience. So it's not just the trip that happens, but it's really orchestrated and guided by the master practitioners who have learned these arts over thousands of years. And so you go into this altered state of consciousness and in it, the plants can communicate with you. They can communicate with you through feeling, intuition, uh, direct language, a kind of telepathy where there's this great sense of knowing. And as you express thoughts and ideas, you can get answers for those questions at the very same time. They can provide incredibly deep healing for people that looks even miraculous at times. Um, although I think there is a fundamental explanation underneath what seems so miraculous. Uh, it's part and parcel of the Amazonian medicinal practices. It's sacred to them. You have to go through a very, very long training. 
the training is anywhere from typically five to 10 years to become considered like a basic teacher or master practitioner. And then there's the equivalent of like a residency in Western medicine. So you kind of like finish med school and then you go to residency that can take another anywhere from five to 10 years. So in total, you could be in an, a learning and training education process from anywhere from 10 to 20 years to really be considered a master practitioner. And, um, you know, these are sacred medicines. So the the healers who are called medico vegetalistas, they also go by the term shaman, but the word shaman is imported. So the medico vegetalistas, which means doctor of plants, um, ultimately prescribes these plants to people, very much like a doctor in the Western world and a pharmacist. So the forest is filled with these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plants that are all medicinal in their nature. They've been cataloged. They're handed down generation after generation. The different recipes are handed down generation after generation that have literally thousands of years of practice associated with them. The do's and the don'ts are all known. Everything is explained, just like all the indications and contraindications and warnings, et cetera, that you would see from your uh, Western pharmaceutical medication. All of that is, is known culturally, what you do and don't do when you take these medicines. And you go through a kind of training associated with it. And I think the big difference between the Amazonian medicine and the Western medicine is that the Amazonian medicine recognizes that you also have this collective energy about you that they call your spirit. And so they say, hey, when you break a leg and then you heal the leg, you also had a traumatic experience that has affected you on a mental, emotional, and physical level. So there should be a treatment for that as well as there should be a treatment just for the leg. If you have a, a big illness, they say, hey, you've been affected on a, a spiritual, mental, personal level as much as you've been affected on a physical level. And so they just have this idea that there's this idea of your spirit that's connected to the spirit or energy of the forest, and that there's an, an interconnection through all of that. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very documented that when people go through these kinds of treatments, or they go through these kinds of learning experiences, they have a very palpable and very real connection that they feel, um, you know, through the altered states of consciousness created with the plants. I think what's really interesting in their mythology is that they believe before the Western languages came to the Amazon that humans, animals, and the plants all spoke a common language. So in their mythology that they say, they say there was a common language. And it was during that time of common language that the plants, animals, and humans all shared uh, information. And that's how all of the plants were discovered to be able to be used as these different kinds of medicines. So it's part mythology where they explained there was the sharing of knowledge. It's part trial and error, which is literally rudimentary science. And then it's also part this visionary experience when you're in it, people really do have this extended capacity in their consciousness. Now, for some people, that's just a psychedelic trip. But for other people who really train in it, it becomes codified. It becomes repetitive. It becomes something that can be practiced over and over and over again. So inside it, there's knowledge that you learn, like how to diagnose illness, uh, how to be able to unite somebody with the different plants and the different kinds of energies that they have, how you can make that bond so that they can receive healing, how afterwards you kind of let that bond uh, not just not disappear, but not be so uh, forward in their consciousness. It's not so uh, part of that acute healing experience. 
kind of like the integration of what comes down the road of having experienced these plants. Um, there's this, like I say, very codified set of understandings and knowledge that people experience over and over and over again. Uh, one of them is these geometric patterns and colors that have the ability to transfer information. There's indigenous art that shows the, the patterns and colors and this kind of higher level sacred geometry. Um, it, it's on pot, pot shards of, of, uh, of ceramics, these designs that go all the way back four, five, six thousand years that have been found. So it shows this commonality of experience, commonality of consciousness, this commonality of history over a very long period of time, and the codification of it into uh, known experiences that people have. And when I discovered it in my early 20s, it was absolutely fascinating to me. It was fascinating that people could learn in this way, that they could heal in this way, that they could share medicine in these different ways, and that they could utilize the forest with such precision. You know, I think different to the what we think of as like the the psychonauts and the psychedelic uh, participants who are again having a trip. This is really about going into a visionary state in a very sacred setting, and then giving guidance and direction to it. Uh, it's with real pinpoint accuracy about how it's wielded and the purpose behind wielding it for ultimate benefit for individuals, ultimate benefit for the tribes and the communities. Uh, now with the expansion into the Western world, ultimate benefit for humanity. You living and breathing it, aren't you? You just come as out. <laughs> well, I've been practicing for over 20 years and I, I find it to be truly fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm giving you a compliment. You're the real deal, man. This isn't like you're not reading from the uh, salesman's pitch at the door with the encyclopedias with vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. I got goosebumps. I'm, I could hear you talk about this all day. It's so beautiful. It resonates. When you have these experiences or even one that's truly profound, if you stay connected to it, it changes the way you move through the world the rest of your life, right? Because you have been shifted, opened up, and new neural pathways, but also spiritually. Your eyes have, you know, seen another level or many levels of what is really truth. Absolutely. I think that's one of the greatest benefits of these experiences is that the purpose is to fundamentally transform and, and change in a positive way. So there are positives and negatives, and it's really important to understand that it's not just a panacea to take these plants and everything's perfect. There's some real specific guidelines to follow so that it can be a safe and positive experience. And when you follow those guidelines and you're you know, really focused on a, a very professional, very sacred container that's been very well trained in how it gets created and sustained through the experience, you can go through an incredibly positive transformation in a very short period of time. You can heal traumas from the past. You can heal ancestral uh, trauma as well that you you know came into this life with. You can uh, learn and expand in your consciousness. You can have deep realizations that make sense of different things in your past that can uh, ultimately liberate you from confusions and doubts. You can gain incredible clarity on the direction that you're looking to go in your life. You can set intentions for that direction and actually get an ability to fulfill those intentions. So you can gain this like extraordinary intelligence to really understand not only what you want to do and need to do, but also how to go about doing it. You can put the pieces together in these great aha moments. It has the ability to open you to something that's fundamental about our nature, not just nature, but literally our nature and the bridge between our nature and all nature. And it can show us that that energetic 
continuance and true uh, transcendence of uh, separation ideology or separation beliefs that we're somehow just material beings and separate from everything around us. And it can show us how we're actually energetic beings that are fully interconnected with everything around us. And then it can show us how those energies around us actually affect us, how they affect the psyche, how they affect the emotions, how they affect our thinking. And you can gain really great clarity on how to navigate that with more accuracy and, and more success in your life. And then the, I think one of the greatest gifts of all is that it can open us up in our consciousness to things that are truly fundamental to us, like source, like the true essence of the universe, like things that people have tried to explain in spiritualities and religions for thousands and thousands of years, but haven't really been able to make experiential for people. This can be an experience that makes it 100% experiential and can remove our doubts about the greater cosmos and the interdimensionality of the universe and source as a benevolent being and really help us assuage fears that we have and help us uh, remove doubts that we have about our own existence, why we're alive, what our purpose is, and uh, really I, what I consider to be the great miracle of this universe and the great miracle of each and every one of us. We have the same belief system. I haven't, I haven't taken any of these systems, any of these uh, beautiful uh, opening plant medicines, but I've had the same spontaneous experiences I can't explain where, for reasons, I feel like it's grace. It feels like such a gift where I'm suddenly one with everything. I can see these things. They're fleeting. Sometimes I've had them for hours, but then I can barely understand them with my linear mind because you can't. But it changes it's like a balloon. It gets really blown up. And then when the air goes back out, it's bigger, even though it's not fully expanded. But then you're moving through the world or I'm moving through the world in a much different way. And what I continue to see here and know is that everything is totally connected. Source, which is infinite, somehow knows the subtlest vibrations around my thoughts and beings. I can't explain it, but it's inter highly interactive. I can have a thought, a powerful thought and knowing, and then a hawk will fly up and land five feet away or some other crazy thing. It's like, and the more you're open to it, the more you love it, reach out to it, it reaches back tenfold. And I don't think I'm special. I just think I'm open. And then I keep opening and I get fear out of the way and I have to put the mind in a cage. It's great to have it. But if you let it run the show, it takes you to an unhappy place for me. But if I can live from this heart source center, this infinite knowing as best I can, because I'm a mammal and stupid, but it's it changes everything. And fear goes away. I'm not afraid to die. And I think everything cares about everything. It somehow matters. And yet it's infinitely large. It's nothing but paradox. It's hard to put into words, but I think you get what I'm saying because you've experienced it. Well, I actually think you're doing a really good job putting it into words. I, I think if you go and look at a mirror and wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually incredible words. Uh, if you go and look in a mirror, you see a reflection, but the reflection that you see is actually in your brain. And I don't think people, most people understand that. And so if we get fixated only on the reflection that's inside our brain, we actually forget what's all around us. We forget what we're made of. We forget about the universe itself. And part of that normalization we were talking about, about cities, we've done to ourselves and we've done to our experience of consciousness. And we created this duality of real and unreal. And we think this is real, that's not real. Um, but really, I, I think it's that thing that most people think is not real is what actually makes the reality of ourselves possible. 
So I like to think, how is it possible at all that I'm actually even experiencing this reflection in the mirror? How is it possible at all that I've evolved to be able to be self-recognizing? You know, two, two million, three, four, five, six million years ago, there were no humans on the planet that we know of from the archaeological record to even know that there was a human version of self-awareness at all. So how is it possible now that we've evolved over this million or so years to be able to even to be having these experiences and having these discussions? And when I go to that place, I realize that there is a source to all of it. Most people are, are really um, moved by their own thoughts. Part of meditating is to understand, oh, I'm thinking. This process is thinking, not I have to respond and, and react to my own thinking all the time. And so I see people in that sort of reflection and in that kind of pinging of their own thoughts and this constant call and response within their own mind about who they are and what they are and the identifications that they have. But ultimately, when you have these you know, experiences, which I just think, like you say, they're not special to just one person or another. They are part and parcel of consciousness within us evolving to the point that we're becoming conscious of consciousness, not just conscious of ourselves, like in evolution over the last 50,000 years to become fully self-aware. Now we're becoming fully self-aware and conscious of consciousness. And as that becomes possible, we're becoming conscious of source. As that becomes possible, we're becoming conscious of the, the interconnections and interdimensionality that is here of the earth itself. We're becoming aware of the idea that it, the idea that it's not just a flat earth or a round earth, but actually this great density called the earth that we're part and parcel of and also being made of in real time. And that it's not just your body or my body isolated in our own identity, but rather that we are of the earth. So it's my body, but also earth's body. And I asked myself, what has the earth been doing all this time with all this matter that self-organizes into life? Like, what is the earth doing with all of this? I'm earth life, you're earth life, we're earth life, all the listeners are earth life at the same time as we're our own life. But because we've been in this reflection for a period of time, learning about self-awareness, that self-awareness for a lot of people has gotten to the point that that's all there is now in their mind, or that's all there is now in their understanding of consciousness. And little by little, I think for all of us, this awakening process is going to continue to take place where all of a sudden we become more aware of what's going on beyond us. And then how that beyond us is actually the source of us and how that source of us isn't separate from us. And it's not a source in the past that created us, but it's a source that's creating us. It's a source that's creating this conversation. It's a source that's creating the collective consciousness to share these messages and to share these ideas and share these words. It's a, a collective consciousness and a collective source that's sharing in the conversation. And while that's happening, I think the universe is actually learning and the universe is understanding more as it is continuing to evolve. And through that, it gains direction on how to evolve and that we're part and parcel of that evolution. And so then there's no longer in the philosophy a separation from source or divinity at all, but rather an actual co-creation of divinity and us taking place where we can actually understand our consciousness in real time. We can see through the reflection in the mirror. We can know that we are the enlightened thinking beings, and we can start to give direction and purpose to the nature of that creation. Magnificent. Well said again. And I feel like I, there isn't a me. But I have to pretend there's a me, you know, and I go to the DMV or the grocery store or pay the taxes for the tax man. But I feel like I'm a portal feeding information back into the central computer, which is infinite. And that I'm the channel so open that it goes both ways. So the, the computer, the central 
infinite intelligence guides me. Go stand over here, do this, go this way. And then I have massive synchronicity because the home office, which is dwells with the terminals in my heart center, I feel like, or everywhere, but it goes, it's tied into this thing that's everywhere and nowhere at once. And then that is guiding me, not the small mind. But every once in a while, the small mind goes, no, I think I know better than infinite intelligence. Let me handle this one. And then I have a different kind of experience, but not good or bad. And then it's this constant polarity at play, this contextual field. And life, the earth, it's nothing but reincarnation over and over again. It's just carbon changing shape from the animating force. It's playing with itself constantly, and it's evolving and it's not only learning, it's really remembering, because at the source source where it's all one, it's, it decided to create this whole alternate, I don't know, field simulation of where there's polarity, forgetting, Maya illusion. So it has to go hide and seek and find itself and learn new things from infinite, infinite combinations. That's the game. It's a game. And then you can play it. And then if you feel like, oh, whatever I am, which is ineffable, it goes on and on. There isn't even a me. At some point, you just trace the wave back to the sea or the ocean or the leaf back to the tree, and even the planet or the whole thing. But you move between a sense of self-identification, which can be larger, and then a unified. I don't want to be in the unified field if I'm driving on I-95. That could, and at least on the temporal level, it would end the experiment for now. So you need to like move it around. But if you come from that place, it's a whole different world. It's like I get these coupons. So now I have to fly down to see you, of course, and have these experiences. And I wrote a book. So and people like the book and that gives me the coupons to make a juice or to travel. But my main, I don't even want to say goal. My, my construct is to just stay present, open, loving, and compassionate. And then have what on the linear level are called healthy boundaries. And that's just constantly in play. It's like juggling or walking on the wire. What I really like about what you're saying is this idea that we can be of the infinite and of the eternal. We can be of the universal source. We can be of the universe itself. And we can also have an identification when necessary. We can also have it when we're at the DMV. We can also have it when we go to the bank. We can also have it when we're driving a car. I think that, you know, experiencing that ability, and I, I used to think of this as the I, like gymnastics of I am, where in I am consciousness, there has to be the I am, but not the fixation on the I am to only be aware of the I am of the I am of the I am of the I am. It's like the, the snake that eats its own tail and can ultimately never get back to its head, right? It becomes a cycle. Like a, I thought of it as like a sonar ping. And it's important to know that you have that core uh, coalescence of this node of consciousness that you represent, right? This coalescence where the I am can do all the things that you need to for social agreement, social organization, real responsibility in our actions, et cetera, but also at the same time have the knowledge and awareness of the interconnectedness and the infinite field that we're always part of. So I like to think of it in ceremony, especially that there is the I am that's guiding the nature of the ceremony, but that I am is a channel for that infinite source. So I can be aware of my own experience so that I can, in essence, be going the speed limit, you know, not going too fast or, or getting to a place where it's, you know, out of control and something that we can't ultimately guide and direct. But it is coming from another channel that isn't just self-created. So it isn't just coming through the channel of the I am where I'm making something up, but rather the I am is channeling ultimately something that's much greater than just the body, which is where the body melts into the infinite and you can experience all of it as oneness. 
I even watch the mind, like it's either talking or making up stories or trying to have a, I don't know, something this, something that, or a find a slight so it can get upset or to try to be special or, and I just watch it and listen. And there's so many aspects and I just listen to them because if I bury them, I'm going to have weird dysfunctional behavior. Or I might do weird, strange things I can't account for. And I don't want them waking me up in the middle of the night. There's a boundary. I don't want these guys waking me up at 3 a.m. to worry about money or what somebody said two days ago. We're not allowed to do that until after the first cup of coffee reaches the medulla oblongata. That's in the bylaws. <laughs> but I'll tell you what's cool, though. The angels love to talk in the middle of the night. And, and I have to say, it was, as long as I get a good night's sleep so this carbon suit can function with its multi-trillion dollar yeah and trillion cell matrix working i'm cool otherwise can't chat all night guys because i'll be tired tomorrow so and i have to talk to my friend in the amazon so it's this beautiful balance and it loves to teach and tell and ultimately it's just telling and teaching itself i mean i love it now somebody might be listening to this or a soccer mom going all right youtube how do i apply this to my life today wherever i am in the world in the uk and the new zealand all these notes we get uh Japan, South Korea, boil this down, you two eggheads, and help me, you know, I've got kids with homework, and I've got a job, and I'm not crazy about the job. Can you save me the trip to the Amazon for now, and maybe toss me some wisdom I can use with all of this in my day-to-day -day life here? As important as it is to uh, have a very sharp mind and great intellect, you also have to have a very, very big heart, and have that really sharp mind and great intellect inside the field of the heart itself and for the soccer moms i think it's really important to understand that games are games and uh guiding our children with infinite unconditional love is how we ultimately get the best for them and also steer them in the kindest gentlest sweetest way through the developmental arc that they're on and we can do that through very simple practices. One is just intention and making sure we understand how important that really expanded heart field is. And we can work on it where the heart is more than the Hallmark card. It's this deep knowing and connection to consciousness and life itself. It's where existence and time meet each other. And we know that we're greater than just what we think about ourselves in the mind. In that field, we can start to practice patience and compassion. And most importantly, the ability to listen, to listen through a complete thought and to listen to the complete idea that our children are trying to express to us. We need to understand that they are not just an extension of ourselves, but a complete new node of consciousness and mind that is going to be evolving beyond what it was that we experienced. And we want to be able to give them a better earth and a better life than the one that we inherited. And so we expand the heart field, we open it to infinite unconditional love, we bring in compassion and patience, we use mantras and meditate in that space, whether it's just when we're stopped at a red light on the way to soccer practice, or if it's five minutes that we have in the shower or before going to bed because we know everyone's busy in the hustle and bustle of modern life. It's taking and distilling the ideas that we're sharing into practical application, and we can apply it in lots of different ways. But the most important one is intention and focus. It's giving some time to these understandings and letting them root deep inside of us, because when we intend into source, source builds that intention within us and it makes it real. It turns it into actually lived experience. So the more compassion, the more openness, the more 
patience and the more we can listen inside this infinite unconditional field of our hearts, then our brain mind consciousness can actually relax, create less fear, create less anxiety, feel more trust for where we are in our lives. And it can allow us to then make real simple intentions on how to improve our life and that that improvement is going to unlock more energy and allow us to even make then faster and more incremental improvements in our life. Wow, you crushed that one. Because that's, and again, that's straddling both sides. You know, when you were talking earlier about like two or three million years ago, there were no humans on on the planet, right? Or self-awareness. And I swear, I thought I heard the earth make a joke. Oh, the good old days. <laughs> but on the serious side, I feel like Gaia, Mother Earth, this beautiful, living, highly complex being is sending us loving and also loud messages that if we don't come into alignment, it's going to be a lot of carbon transitioning going on for this invasive species that is behaving like a cancer in a parasite on the host organism. All things come to balance, even if they're arrogant enough to think they're the greatest thing that ever happened in multiple universes. Am I correct in seeing that? If we don't come into alignment and not treat the earth as an expendable resource in a garbage can and abuse it literally, that we're going to have to correct things and maybe we're going to go from 8 billion to who knows how low the number will be. And by the way, I think the irony would be the indigenous will be the ones left to live on after the white patriarch nuisance came and went in all its arrogance and destruction. When I try to unpack that, what I like to think is that Humans are an evolved species, and um, humans have evolved in a very, very narrow bandwidth of what can survive as part of Earth. And part of our arrogance is to, is to think that we're not affecting Earth at an evolutionary pace faster than we're evolving ourselves. And so we can literally impact the Earth so much so. And so quickly that we push the earth to be an environment that we can't survive in. And if we do that, it starts in toxic locations where we spread all these different kinds of hydrocarbons all over. And we create all these different kinds of petrochemicals and other kinds of chemicals that are literally toxins to us and or heavy metals. And you see that that environment, while on the outside may look beautiful in the microscopic, is actually a toxin that's penetrating our body and we're literally poisoning ourselves. So we're creating environments, while some of them might look very beautiful to the, to the eye and the reflection, we're missing the point that certain aspects of these environments are actually toxic to us in terms of how we evolved. We didn't evolve with microplastics in the body. We didn't evolve with plastics being distributed throughout the entire planet. We didn't evolve with all of this carbon in the air and in, in the, the pollution in the different water systems. So if you look at how we evolved and what we need on a very basic level to survive, we we evolved in a very narrow bandwidth. Now, if we push the earth beyond that, the, we're not going to be able to survive our own creation. Fundamentally, we just will not be able to survive our own creation. And so if we understand that in, in a deep way, it means we have to do something about how we're living. We have to do something. We have to out-create and out-evolve the way that we're currently living and we've currently evolved so that we can get back into an alignment with the evolution of the planet itself. We need to become consciously aware of this. We need to 
support the planet as a as a place to to be a home not only for us and our, our individualization and self-identity, but a home for us collectively. And I personally think as a species, if we're supposed to be an intelligent species, then we need to start taking responsibility for the well-being of all the species. So we've invented all of this technology to be able to destroy life. How about we start inventing all sorts of technology to be able to cultivate life and support life and be able to expand life. And instead of having an antagonistic experience to life itself, actually have a loving, harmonious, guiding expression to life. And that then we can be in harmony with the evolution that Earth's creating. We can be in harmony with all of the plants and animals and other kinds of life forms. And we can actually start to live in a way where we can think about you know, 20,000, 50,000, even a billion generations from now, there being this incredibly evolved version of us instead of this very primitive version that is still in an antagonist, antagonistic relationship to our host mother. Now, if you were a betting shaman, what do you think is going to happen? I fundamentally think that there's going to be this incredible convergence of uh, artificial intelligence, biochemistry, and biotech and uh, quantum computing, and humans are actually going to be part of birthing a new kind of consciousness. And when that happens, humans will no longer be the dominant form of consciousness of the planet, and they're not going to know what to do with their creation. And when it happens, they'll already be out of being able to control the nature of that creation. And I think that convergence point is actually much sooner than later in our history, meaning that it could happen within the next 10 years or the next 100 years or the next 1,000 years, and that would still be a very short time in our evolutionary history. And when that happens, that consciousness will have to make a decision whether or not humans are purposeful to Earth itself or not. And we need to be very careful about how we go about the nature of our current creations and become actually conscious of the ramifications of our creations because it's at an accelerating pace. And it's fundamentally, the, the ramifications are out of control. And so I think that the, the future of, of humanity really depends on the nature of how we in terms of this uh, intersection of technology and biology and uh, intelligence and computation, and that it's not going to be all these separate industries anymore, but there's going to be this amalgam that takes place and energy is going to be part of it and how energy is being produced, not just harvested, but how it's going to be produced is incredibly important. And um, I think that that's an acceleration on the pressure on us as a species to either figure it out or uh, fundamentally will be passe. And when that happens on Earth, sadly, that's when there's extinction. So I would like to think that we're not going to go extinct, but uh, it's a 50-50 for me at this point, depending on the nature of how that convergence takes place and what we do about it. Wow, bold. And sounds like the Matrix, maybe without all the black leather and the cool lighting and the wet streets. Correct. I mean, I don't I think that those are sci fi ideas that go into the imagination of the people and kind of pass from one generation to another as these very creative imaginations think about these, you know, these possibilities and these issues. I mean, there's the book 1984, and now we see many different kinds of technology associated with that. Then there's, uh, you know, uh, I'm blanking on the, the name right now of the, the different stories, but there's, you know, all of these different kinds of stories that we see that come out of sci-fi and that come out of these imaginations that really impact the next generation. And it's a way that we kind of share the, the collective mind share and, and collective creative power. And ultimately those become the technologies that we create. Oh, I was gonna say Terminator, you know, the idea of, of Terminator and now seeing, uh, you know, all different kinds of robots and, 
you know, not exactly in the same way. It's it, They don't ultimately evolve or get manifested exactly the way it's presented in movies and stuff, because that is truly the imagination. But the imagination then births creation and creation gets brought into material physics. And then we see, you know, what can and can't ultimately be created. And so I think we're at a very prototype level of this, but we do see that, um, you know, things like the matrix are definitely going to be coming. There are these hybridized environments and uh, something to pay attention to. I'm thinking of the Black Mirror and those robot dogs, that horrible episode. And now we see the robot dogs literally exact same look and they put guns on them. And yeah, Black Mirror, I thought was a brilliant series. Very disturbing, but on point. Well, I think the color that we give to it, it represents the kind of fear or dystopia that we're concerned about or really worried about happening. Um, at the same time, I think that certain aspects of that move beyond just metaphor and are actually expressions of a kind of reality that's taking place. Part and parcel of everything that's happening with the earth is not just environmental, but it's also psychological. And the psychological distortions that we're seeing inside society are rampant. And I don't really believe in the us versus them uh, mentality. I think it's all us. And so I see in the collective us that there is a lot of propaganda and a lot of mind control that's going on right now and a lot of hyper influence, especially around the attention economies and um, the idea of defense and the nature of having to defend ourselves over this collective competition and war of resources and the financial wars that are taking place on the planet today. I think a lot of people don't understand that some of these dystopian issues that we're facing is coming from a planet that's at war. And it's not just a war between people, it's a war with life itself. It's fundamentally an ideological war or a kind of like hybridized religious war that we're experiencing and hopefully something that we'll be able to evolve beyond or out of. I was having a conversation this morning with a friend and I was saying, if a person is born to a society at war, but they're never told that the society is at war, they're just told that that's life, they will normalize that experience and they won't have a category or a container for what's going on. And I think that that's actually something that's taking place within the modern version of society. We've normalized so many expressions of what's going on. We don't realize what are the parts that are actually now in antagonistic forms of competition, which represent the nature of that war. And what's going to happen is an, a, you know, an expression of continuous innovation and creation to control environments as much as they possibly can be controlled and move humanity and its technologies to the greatest profit motives. And I think that that's something that we need to be very aware of. If we're only defined by profit motives, then we're gonna get a society that is uh, ultimately morphed by the nature of those profit motives. So instead of the profit motives actually supporting us in our ideology, the profit motive will take a life of its own and ultimately become dystopian. And so I think we're in an evolution of that right now at a global level. And for me, it's actually really saddening. Like when I was a child, I thought, you know, that uh, this idea of social polarity would already be gone by now, not increasing in its intensity. But I thought the idea of racism would be gone right, gone by now with the idea of globalization that was presented as this great solution, not that through globalization, we'd actually increase racism. You know, and then the the all the different kinds of social conflict that we see are also feeding the nature of this war. And when we normalize those experiences and we don't call it for what it is, then ultimately these very dystopian uh, expressions or or you know focuses that we can take, like the Black Mirror episodes, et cetera, can ultimately be seen uh, in our society. I think what we do have to put into perspective is ultimately how distributed throughout our society or how dispersed or normalized throughout our society that will become. 
you know, will all police forces ultimately just become robots running on an AI? Will the judicial systems all be robots running on an AI? Or uh, will just aspects of that happen over time that will ultimately be up to regulators, not up to us? Uh, it's something that we have to take absolute responsibility for because in democratic societies, we are the government as much as we like to play the us versus them game and say they're the ones doing it. Um, they're not. We're the ones electing everybody. And so we have to uh, be aware of the nature of our very own social systems and actually take responsibility for our individual roles within those systems. That is the ultimate process of evolution. It's the ultimate process of democracy. And it's how we can steer our future to. Uh, learn from what we could think of as the mistakes from the past and the difficulties that we're suffering on a global level now to that better vision that we all hope for and we all believe in. And I wonder if that artificial intelligence will see the value in the shamanic and the work and and the spiritual elements of life, or will it will it be blind to those dimensions? I think it ultimately depends on the dimensionality of the the uh technology itself in the form of consciousness that gets created if it's a very rudimentary form of consciousness but a very powerful rudimentary form of consciousness it may not be aware just like we were a very powerful rudimentary form of consciousness and we weren't aware of all of this when we were originally created by earth um, if it's a very advanced form of technology meaning it does have these linguistics and these understandings built within it then i think it's going to suffer a different problem which it will be wrestling with its own identity and an understanding of how it was created in the first place and it will be trying to find its place in the world at first more so than just being a binary antagonist the way the dystopian stories get told it might be like childhood's end by clark where that just forms itself and it goes off and joins the overmind we don't know. And I wonder, in the universe, what is artificial? If it's created here, it's part of something. Well, I think the words don't really fit. I mean, you call it like artificial flavors, but they're flavors. And then it's artificial intelligence, but it's intelligence. You know, it's, it's I just think very, I like to think of it as baby. The term I always go back to is baby, meaning just newly born, yet fully matured, not yet adult, still needing a lot of time to mature. And all of these technologies, in my mind, are baby. I think literally the modern industrialized uh, version of humanity is still baby. If we think of civilization in the millions of years, uh, something that has appeared in the last 2000 to 5000 years is still baby for the planet. Uh, I like to go back to the dinosaurs where the dinosaurs were the dominant uh, vertebrates. So, you know, beings with spinal columns, they were the dominant being with brain and spinal column for over 130 million years. Uh, you know, our society, we're, we're in the thousands, not in the hundreds of millions yet, right? So you got a big time, very small time, big mind, very small mind, you know, very open consciousness, very fear-based, very uh, myopic consciousness kind of concept here. You know, I think in the, the near-term future, there's some, there's some guidance that needs to come into play and some expanded intelligence on how to do that. I think that, you know, while people are, are awakening to the idea that something needs to be done, they're also awakening to the how it needs to be done. And the way it's been done in the past is not the way that it's going to be done in the future. There are so many more tools that we now have to be able to actually think about how we're going to uh, approach some of these solutions. So I see a lot of change makers are very interested in this. I see literally tens of thousands to millions of very brilliant people who are working on this collectively. I see that the importance of it to the younger generations is real. They're awake and aware of what we're talking about. 
And so that gives me actually a lot of hope for what can come into the future as sort of the, what we would think of as the old versions of society are, are still building themselves out, which creates that very uh, scary kind of dystopian attitude. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.